Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John 11. John 11, we'll, we'll pick up at verse 17 and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John 11, verse 17 through 29. This is the Word of the Lord, it is eternally true. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would um, bless every one of our thoughts and meditations, bless the words of my mouth. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Let me just say very briefly that, um, well, a couple things. One, home fellowship groups, please, please, please make an effort to be there. Um, once a month, uh, the first meeting will just be um, fellowship, and then we'll have, uh, we're going to be using um, a Jerry Bridges book called Pursuit of Holiness, and we'll have simple teaching and fellowship. That's all it's meant to be. We started with members of the church, and so if you're not a member, you're a frequent attender, and you want to attend a group, you got to let me know. But um, but we have the group set up, and we're asking God to bless those uh, that ministry and build the friendships and relationships in the church. So let's do it. Commit, please. And then second of all, I, I was reminded again this week of the the absurdity of preaching that god speaks through me as i preach and that's what he's ordained in the church right he could have spoken directly but that would not have been merciful because to hear the voice of god directly would be like uh you know happened in exodus uh, it would be fearful And so he condescends, right, to speak through a man to make it palatable, but he also does it 
right, as Calvin said, to humble you so that you have to eat from the hands of somebody who is inferior to you. And that's what's happening. I'm just a, a, you know, a lump of dust. And there you have to eat from my hands as I preach the word of God. And that's good for our souls to have to do that. It's good in the fact that, that God uh, is condescending to us in this method. Um, but it's also good in that we're humbled by it uh, to do this. So um, just reminded of that week, that this week. So let's look at John 11. And um, I, again, I'll just encourage you that uh, you should bring print Bibles to church. I'm saying this for Sandy, no. She nodded vigorously. Bring print Bibles because if you're looking at your phone, it discourages me. Because I know you're not looking at the Word of God. I mean, maybe you are, but you're getting interrupted with other things. But bring a print Bible and, and open it up and have it open and refer to it every once in a while between naps. I'm just kidding. No, it, it is very helpful to have it, and it's a good routine to get into. And it's a witness, right? As the church walks into, into the, the building with a Bible in their hands, we're telling the world that we live according to God's Word. And so... Um, if you need a copy, I will personally buy you a copy or just tell you to take one from the pew. Just take one from the pew. If you need a copy, that's your own. All right, so back to John 11, um, verse 17. We, so we're returning to these events surrounding the death of Lazarus again. Um, John recorded, it's interesting to me that John records a lot of what happens before the actual big event of Lazarus, you know, coming forth from the tomb. And, um, and so he's now spent, it says right off the bat, he'd been in the tomb for four days. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. And Jesus had finally now made his way there after delaying his departure so that his miracle would be more evident to them. We've gone through that before. Bethany, the city where Lazarus and his sisters uh, lived and where Lazarus was buried, was not too far from Jerusalem, which meant that there were uh, many people could come from that, that city, that big city, and um, console this brother and sister at their lost, at their loss, or console the sisters at their brother's loss. And so, um, in fact, that sort of coming together for a funeral was mandatory. You had to do that. Um, the Jews would do this work of grieving with the family. Some of the rabbinic writings uh, Describe the intensity of the mourning that would take place at a funeral such as this. Uh, women were known to tear their hair out in their grief or as a symbol of grief. And one rabbi was known to have scourged himself uh, in the midst of the grief. Uh, mostly, though, uh, those were the extreme forms of grief, but mostly, though, the mourners were there to fulfill their religious obligation and comfort the family. And after the funeral, there, there, 
there would be 30 days of mourning. 30 days. The first week was, the first three days were very intense. The first week was intense. And then the 30 days were less, you know, the remainder of it was, was less intense. But that's a pattern that we see in Scripture, right? When Aaron died, Israel grieved for 30 days. When Moses died, it was 40, I think. Um, a commentary describes it this way, following the funeral, then began the mourning in the house, which really lasted 30 days, of which the first three were those of greatest, the others during the seven days, or the special week of sor uh, sorrow, of less intense mourning. But on the Sabbath, as God's holy day, all mourning was intermitted, and so they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. They kept the Sabbath by ceasing from their mourning. Very interesting to me. And so those days before Jesus had gotten there would have been filled with that, that kind of mourning. Deep grief, tears, worries about the future, right? Prayers to counteract all those anxieties that were cropping up in their hearts. And, and think about the fact that that mourning would carry on for 30 days. And that mourning would not just be individual, that would be communal mourning for 30 days. We individualistic Americans can't really wrap our heads around 30 days of communal mourning at the death of somebody, right? We rush our funerals or delay them so that they can fit into our busy schedules, right? That's becoming more and more common. Um, we do not like to think about death, so 30 days of, of communal mourning seems like an excessive burden to us. Um, we'll mourn for longer than 30 days, but the expectation is that it sh it, you, you need to do that on your own, right? Go mourn. Allow others to move on and take your grieving to your own home by yourself, which is not really how the church should be. We should grieve with one another and we should uh, allow others to share our grief, right? Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep. That's what we should do. And, and the Holy Spirit teaches that, right? Allowing death to interrupt our routines and allowing for a time to settle in your grief, not without hope and not without an end to that grief, but allowing time to settle in your grief would certainly take your minds off of this temporal world and its vortex and put them on eternal things. And that might be one of the sweetest parts of grief is it just shows you how much brain power you were putting on what didn't mean anything at all. Death is an enemy and perhaps we'd understand that better if we didn't feel social pressure to gloss over the death of our loved ones. That we settled into that grief. So Martha learns that Jesus is on his way and she can't just sit in her home, right? She went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. And, and what does Martha say to Jesus when she gets to him? She reveals what she has been thinking about since the day her brother had died. She says, Lord, if you had been here. 
my brother would not have died. Her beloved brother, this friend of Jesus, would still be alive if Jesus had showed up a few days earlier before the sickness of which he had died had run its course, right? Now, though, it seems too late. She wonders, as, as we would, about God's providence. Why Jesus would arrive now and not just a few days earlier. She's frustrated by God's providence. If you had just been here, right? This is a complaint, She's complaining against the providence of God. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Jesus didn't need to be there to heal Lazarus. He didn't even need to be there to heal Lazarus. Surely Martha knew that Jesus could have just said a word at any point previous to those four days, and Jesus and and her brother would have gotten better. He had done this before. A centurion had known that Jesus could heal from a distance. Even after Jesus had told, you know, Jesus tells that centurion, says, okay, I'm going to come to your house and heal the servant. The, The centurion then objects to Jesus going to the physical proximity of his servant who is ill. And he says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And that's faith, right? Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus, and yet after their brother dies, their complaint is that Jesus hadn't physically made his way to their brother to heal him. They had faith to say, if you had been there, he would not have died, and yet their faith was mixed with unbelief, in that they had forgotten or doubted that he did not need to be present to heal their beloved brother. They knew his power, and they doubted his power. They knew he was God and thought that he was limited in what he could do. We get twisted up like this. It's so easy to get twisted up like that, isn't it? God has opened our eyes to his glory by putting the Spirit within us, giving us new birth, changing the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, freeing us from our bondage to sin, enslaving us to himself. And yet, when we go to him in prayer, we simply do not believe that he's able to do all things. And so we stop our prayers short. We just stop them. We do not pray for that person who is so dead set against the things of God because we really think that God's arm is too short. He's not going to save that person. Couldn't possibly break through there. We don't pray about world events because we really think that God cannot bring wars to an end. We do not pray for God's provision because we really think that God is aloof and he's got... Bigger fish to fry than our daily bread. We do not pray for holiness because we really think that God is the kind of God who only gives gifts to those who earn them by their holiness. Right? We're still is... We have no intent to wait on the Lord after we pray and we often just take matters into our own hands right? 
which is to say that our belief is, is mingled with terrible unbelief. That's what it is. Though we may be saved, there remains within us until we die in our glorified, indwelling sin. We are merely converted sinners until we die. That's what we are, right? And by saying this, it's not my intent to excuse our unbelief. Our unbelief is sin, and we ought to be grieved by our unbelief. But what is important is this. You must recognize this about yourself. You must recognize that you are a mingle of sin and righteousness. It's hard for Reformed Christians to admit that truth. Right? You don't have everything right, either ethically or intellectually. You don't. Right? You err, you fail, you sin. You approach Almighty God at times and reduce Him just as Martha does here. She is reducing who Jesus is. And so recognize that about yourself. You reduce God. You reduce Jesus. Right? And repent. Repent of that diminishing of God and his power. Ryle says, happy is that child of God who understands these things and has learned to judge rightly both of himself and others. Rarely indeed shall we find the saint who does not often need the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Rarely. I mean, never right, do we find a saint who does not often need that prayer. And so what's the alternative to that humility? The, the alternative is, is, the, is you will just be attempting to justify your unbelief all the time. You're go, you'll go around justifying your unbelief. You won't ever oppose yourself. You won't, you won't, I, you'll be like, I'm good. What's wrong with the world? Right? That's, that will be your main attitude. And so um, you'll make sure that you take the side of the Pharisee, right, who thanked God that he was not like other people. Ugh. Never follow the example of the humble and convicted tax collector who beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And, and let me take, can I shepherd? Is it okay to shepherd? It's what I've been doing, but is it okay to continue? I have a pretty good sense of which of you oppose yourself and which of you take the side of the Pharisee. Okay. It is a joy to correct some of you. <laughs> and it's a cause of fear and trembling for the elders to have to correct others of you. I mean like sleepless nights sort of correction, you know, worry. This should not be. This should not be. You should be so used to opposing yourself that when someone comes along and corrects you, you're like, well, duh, yeah, help me overcome this. And we'll be like, oh, whew, okay. Um, we got past the point where they would normally depart from the church, and now we can actually do some sanctifying, shepherding, counseling, good work. 
But that starts with you being always in the mode of opposing yourself. Being humble about yourself. I am the sinner. Pharisees are proud. Pharisees won't take correction. They just, everything is, everything bad is exterior to their own minds, hearts, and wills. Do you know what verse comes before this verse? Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. And it's always a joy when you go to somebody and they've been, they've been opposing themselves and their own sin and unbelief. And you go and you say, look, you need to oppose your sin and unbelief. And they're like, yes, help me. It is a joy to apply the word of God to some of the sheep, generally those who recognize about themselves that they are a jumble of faith and unbelief, righteousness and sin, simultaneously sinful and justified. On the other hand, it is a hardship and the worst part of the work of shepherding to apply the word of God to others of you, to the Pharisees who go about claiming their righteousness before God and those who see very little reason to oppose themselves. I'm good. I'm glad you didn't make me like other people. Oh, I mean, you just say it and it's like, yeah, I say that to myself all the time. You know? I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. Whew. Now, the other thing that should be said about Martha's words here, if you had been there, this wouldn't have happened, is this. It is our duty to submit to God's will. You have a calling. You have a duty. You have, you have been given the Holy Spirit. You have faith. And it should lead you to submit to God's will. There is nothing that happens where Christ is not present. He's always present. He was present with Martha that day, which is to say that God's providence never has him preoccupied with something or someone else, leaving us to wonder whether what has happened is for our good or for our harm. Watson says, He who loves God and is called according to his purpose may rest assured that everything in the world shall be for his good. This is the Christian's cordial which may warm him, make him like Jonathan, who when he had tasted the honey at the end of the staff, his eyes were enlightened. Right? Understanding that about God's providence. So remember that Jesus had already said that all of these events, even though Martha is lamenting them, all of these events would result in what? the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. So all these things, he's already said that. This is going to end in the glory of God so that I might be glorified in it. And so it's our duty to submit to the will of God. And, and by to submit, I don't mean unhappily force your will to accept that which is disgusting to you. What I mean is that you submit according to your knowledge of God, which is to say you know that all that God does is good, and so whatever he lays out is good for his children and ultimately for his glory. 
Think theologically. Think about the power of God. Think about his immense power in his providence, ordaining that which comes to pass. Did you stub your toe this morning? Yep, part of God's providence. So returning to Martha's words, after her lament about Christ's location, she then says, Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Now on first reading, right, it seems like Martha is essentially saying, but I know you can raise him from the dead. Right? That's how we read this. It's like, I know you can do anything. I know you can raise him from the dead. But I think we tend to hear them that way because we know what's coming up. We know the end of the story. And so we have a tendency to read them that way, knowing what's coming. Um, We have Jesus' actions laid out for us, but this is not how we should read these words. Chrysostom says this, Martha speaks as if Christ was only some virtuous and approved mortal. Ryle says she speaks as if our Lord was a human prophet only and had no independent power of his own as God to work a miracle and as if he could not command a cure but must ask God for it, as Elisha did. Right? So, <coughs> so first, by proximity, she's diminishing Jesus. Now she's diminishing Jesus again and saying, well, I know you can pray and perhaps God will hear that prayer, just like the prophets of old. As if Jesus doesn't have independent power as God to do these miracles. So again, it can be read as Martha underestimating, diminishing Christ's power, even while she is showing faith by elevating prayer. It's a mixed statement, even as her previous statement. And Jesus now speaks his first words since he arrived in Bethany. Your brother will rise again. I mean, it seems to be a big picture sort of promise, and that indeed is the way that Martha takes it. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Again and again, we see statements like this by Jesus. He speaks in a sense cryptically, and when people speak cryptically, they often do so to provoke a response or or to make people bring up their questions. Um, Jesus did this time and time again, and he did it in order to draw faith from his people. It's the same with us who have the word of God, right? Though our minds are illumined by the Spirit dwelling in us, we must still study God's word to come to a knowledge of the truth. We're called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if some things seem difficult for you in the Word of God, it's because God wants to draw faith out of you by degrees and by your devotedness to His Word. Funny how your faith can dwindle when you set aside the Word of God. Funny how the enticements of Satan can seem reasonable when we have been too lazy to take up the sword of faith, which is the word of God. But it's not funny. It's terrible. 
and dangerous when we think we have arrived and leave off attempting to prove what the will of God is, right? So don't, don't, do not take the difficulty of God's word where it seems, you know, cryptic to you as God seeking to hide himself from us. Rather, it is to draw out from us faith and advance us through this difficult life step by step. But you got to not be lazy. You have to study the Word of God. Now, Martha knows that Scripture teaches a resurrection from the dead on the last day. The Pharisees believed this, right? Pharisees got this. The Sadducees were the liberals. They, they read the Bible, but apparently didn't understand it. But Martha knows from, from Scriptures like these, Job 19, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. Resurrection. As for me, Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold the, your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Isaiah 26, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You will lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So Martha clings to these verses in light of the dead body of her brother. It's good that she's thinking about these things. She has hope that though he has ceased life, in this life, he would, as she says, rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She may not get to see him in this life, but she would one day see him. She, had seen, she is, it seems, disappointed. Like she's sighing through this truth she knows. Like, I know, I know he's going to rise on the last day. And Jesus has been late not physically present. He could pray and perhaps God would show favor and, and her brother would live again, but, but, you know, at the end, but she wanted something different. She wanted him now, which is what we all want when a beloved person close to us dies. All of what Martha says and thinks at this moment has tinges of faith, but it also reveals that she's diminishing Jesus in her thoughts. What Jesus says next is meant to correct Martha's shallow thoughts of him, okay? That's the first thing that's meant. Notice that he speaks of who he is. He clearly does not want her to get away with these little thoughts of diminishing him that are conflicting with her faith. He corrects her by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you see how she, he's like, he's like, you're, you keep pushing me down. And then he's just like, I am me. I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Jesus needed no assistance because he is the resurrection and he is life. He is the one who raises up every man from death and he is the one who made life and gives life. Death came by Adam. Life comes from Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I am God. I'm God. Stop diminishing me. 
stop speaking in ways that don't reflect who I am. There is nothing too difficult for me. Martha, stop lurching between faith and unbelief. The great I am stands right before you. Really, Jesus is helping Martha understand what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that she, Martha, may be filled up to the fullness of God. And she keeps putting the brakes on. And Jesus is saying to her, if you have physical life, that's because of me. If you have spiritual life, it's because of me. Right? If you have eternal life, it's because of me. If you have breath, you will have to do with the Son of God because it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Do you realize that? All of you will have to do with Jesus one day. You'll have to do with him. If you have breath, he made you and he will be your judge. And you will have to come to terms with Jesus Christ, Son of God. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Every man, woman, child, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, atheist, every persons from every tongue, tribe, nation will stand before the one who gave them their life, who fashioned them together in their mother's womb. It will be by Christ's power that your body will come forth from the grave one day, some to a resurrection of judgment and some to a resurrection of life. Remember what Jesus said earlier in his ministry, John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So all will be raised again. Some will, be, will still be in their sins when they're raised. Some will have had their sins punished in Jesus Christ. What about you? Do you care? Are these scriptures still silly myths to you? Or do you know that someday soon you will stand before God who created your body and gave you a soul? Will you be clothed in Christ's righteousness? Or will you be clothed in your evil deeds? This is what Jesus is talking about here. He will judge the living and the dead. You, dear soul, will stand before him. How, how will you be saved because your sin is terrible and your deeds are evil. Well, Jesus said, He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
oh, we, we will all die if the Lord does not return first. But did you know there is a second death? Those who die in the Lord won't die again. They will never receive that second death. But those who do not know Jesus are given thanks will die the second death. It is the pronouncement from Jesus that he never knew you. The first death was awful, but, but hearing that sentence of death coming from the mouth of the glorious almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be far worse. You know that feeling you get when, when bad news comes to you, some tragic event has happened. You know how your gut just sinks and your heart just gets tight. Think of how the heart will sink when you finally realize that God is, as you stand before him after your death, and he says, depart from me. The heart will sink to depths it has never known before as the kindness of God is removed from you forever and ever and ever, world without end. And so Jesus says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Check, check, check. She understands that this man standing before her was the promised Messiah, who was the son of the heavenly father, and he, he was the one who all the prophets had said was going to come into the world to erect his kingdom. She had, it seems, spiritual eyes for spiritual realities, which it must be said are impossible for the natural man to have. Yet, it still seems she has much to learn. Her answer kind of smacks of a catechism answer. Doesn't it? Learn by rote. What she said was not wrong. It's actually really remarkable what she says, really, but her words are not as remarkable as what Christ just said about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. No prophet had spoken anything like that. Soon Martha would come to understand just exactly what he meant when her brother came forth from the tomb, a mini-resurrection. And more importantly, when Jesus himself came forth from the tomb, the resurrection. Her understanding would move from her mind to her heart and move from a mere head knowledge to a heart knowledge. Right? Children. Children. Stop drawing. Some of you can pay attention when you draw, but most of you can't, because I can't. We teach you the catechism, right? We teach you catechism so that you can grow your knowledge, so that you can have fixed truths, right, in your minds. But to know the catechism is not to know God. It is not to know God. If you read a biography of someone, there's a sense in which you would know that person, right? If you read a bio of, of Winston Churchill, you could say, well, yeah, I know a lot of things about Winston Churchill. 
But you would not know that person as well as someone who had interacted with him during his life. So we want you to know about God, but more importantly, children, we want you to know God, to live with God, right? To love God, to think about God, to serve God, to rest in God, to fulfill your chief end, right? Which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we want. Yes, memorize the catechism, but it is just a tool that we hope God will use for you to get to actually know him. To know things about God is not to know God. It could be that many of of our covenant children merely know stuff about God, but have yet to enjoy him. And so you must... You must move from thinking about God as a concept or a construct and begin to love Him. You must love Him. You must move from thinking about resurrection as a concept and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, yeah, like actually in history, on some day about 2,000 years ago. And, here's the important thing, He did it for me. For me. You must move from thinking that you are alive to thinking that you have life. You are merely alive by some, you know, physical uh, cosmic accident to being, uh, to thinking that you have life because God gave you life in your mother's room womb, right? Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. That is the truth. It being the truth, there should be no question in your mind and in your heart how you must live. You must live not merely to make money, not merely to consume this or that product, not merely to be a productive member of society. You must live to glorify God. Cease your striving for all these other things. You were made to glorify God. Full stop. Right? Samuel? Maggie? Made to glorify God. What do you, if any adult asks you what you want to be when you grow up, you say, I don't care. I just want to worship God. That's what you just start answering. You must live to glorify God. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and so you must live to worship him. Worship is your sole purpose. It is your sole purpose in this life, and your vocation is a subset of that worship. Everything falls under that, right? Stop treating God like a math equation. He is a father, who has adopted you into his household. He is a father who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins. And so you have to, you have to love him. You have to fear him. You have to enjoy him. You have to honor him. You have to worship him. You have to live like he's actually there and his eyes are going about seeking those who are well-pleasing to him. 
And then, right, there's something Jesus said about first his kingdom and then all the things you're really worried about, that's what he'll add to that. Seek his kingdom first. And so children, memorize those catechism questions, but pursue God. Pursue God. Think about him. Pray to him. Do you pray? Do you pray, children? Do you love to pray? Yeah. I see some nods. Yeah. Children are great prayers. They put adults to shame. They pray with faith. They pray weird at dinner sometimes. I mean, the things they thank the Lord for are weird. But we, we ought to give, give praise to God for all things. Right? But Martha, this passage, Martha is a mix, right? She's faith and unbelief. She's diminishing Christ in the things she says. And Christ in that one statement, I am. I am, exalts himself and wants Mary, Martha to come along and, and exalt him. And that's, that's the thrust of this sermon this morning, is don't treat God like a concept. Don't check off the catechism things. Don't diminish Christ by your unbelief. Don't diminish him by neglecting the word and to ne- neglecting to, to learn, but exalt him, Right? Amplify the Lord Jesus Christ in your minds. Live your life as if he is there always with you. Right? Amen?